Hello, and welcome back to a virtually vacationing episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your Cinemechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Today we'll be reviewing 1990's Total Recall. Before we do, let's go ahead and check in on that shop. Yo, come on in. Hey, man. I know this is going to be a little last minute. Super sorry, but that resort Kate and me have been trying to book, I uh, just had an opening come up. Oh, no shit. The one with the uh, glass dome and, like, the digital mani-pedi setup? Yes, sir. It is going to be a blast. Deluxe suite. Dude, that's great, man. I know you've been dreaming of a vacation for a long time. Uh, when do you all leave? Two weeks. Oh, dope. Shit, plenty of time for me. I'll, uh, I'll call Joey. He'll probably help me cover... Uh, y'all gonna drive or fly? Two weeks. Yeah, no, I heard that part, but I was thinking if you're driving, my guy over at Enterprise, he can hook you up. Uh, how would Kate like rolling up in something Italian? Two weeks. Brad, what the fuck? Are you okay? Two Okay, I'm gonna call an ambulance, but let's review Total Recall first. Average Joe Douglas Quaid decides to indulge his dreams of visiting Mars by having false memories of a vacation to the Red Planet implanted into his mind. While undergoing the procedure, a suppressed memory of a life he doesn't recall is triggered. Quaid is soon thrust into an incomprehensible world of ancient alien technology and the conflict between an authoritarian corporate government and the underground rebellion of psychic mutants for control of Mars' most precious resource. Air. Alrighty, Travis. Let's go ahead and get into it. We'll do a quick quick diagnostic here and then we'll jump into our five point inspection average joe book report still bulging bohemian rhapsody and faux noir but again before we do go ahead and give me a quick diagnostic what did you think of 1990s total recall you did watch 1990s total recall right and not 2012 oh god not again (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I did watch 1990s Total Recall, uh, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, again, this is one that I'll have to be honest. I saw it as a kid and loved it. Why my parents allowed me to watch this at seven years old, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. yeah, this is a hard R. What you say? <laughs> this is a hard R. Like this is there is there is plenty of weird nudity and just adult themes and just lots of '90s gore. And I have to specify '90s gore because it's different than modern gore. Well, and it's not even just '90s gore. It's Paul Verhoeven gore, <laughs> uh, who is the director, and we'll probably touch on him at some point. But from watching this, from my memory of watching it as a kid. I remember thinking, hey, it's another awesome Arnold movie. Uh, You know, I was watching Predator and Terminator and Terminator 2. But I also was like, I remember the plot as a kid. I was just like, wait, Arnold's fucking people up. But there's a lot more going on and I don't quite comprehend. So I'm just going to focus on Arnold fucking people up. And then your description talking about underground psychic mutants. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, there's a lot to digest in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to make sure that the intro was as convoluted as I felt the movie actually was. Um, so this is I have I have to make an admission on the podcast, and Travis, I don't want you to judge me or any of our avid listeners. Um, this is the first time I have actually watched this movie all the way through. Um, uh, I have seen bits and pieces of it many, many times. Um, but this is the first time I actually sat through beginning to end and actually watched the entire Total Recall. And quick diagnostic, I do not think it's a great movie. Um, I think it is culturally relevant, and we'll get into that probably at the end with our recommendation. But as a as a, a movie critic, as a movie reviewer, I have to say, I think this is is probably teetering more on on the bad side of movies. Um, but I think well, I think there's a reason people gravitate and love it, and I think that there's a crutch. Um, and admittedly, it doesn't really hit into our five points, so I'll just come out and say it. I think this movie benefits from it is a terrible narrative. Uh, it's all over the place. I don't think many of the characters' motivations or anything makes any sense, except for the one-dimensional bad guy. Um, but what the movie does have is some really awesome visual effects. Even watching it in 2021, I still think because most of it was practical effects and they actually used real sets when they were building you know, the settings and stuff like that, and miniatures for like some of the 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 actual like uh, shots of the the cities and landscapes and stuff like that. Because of that, this movie has enough visuals that it just hits you with something weird or something visually stunning or stimulating that you f don't really focus on the plot until you've left it, and then you're like, that movie made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah, I'm gonna have a couple questions about the plot. Um, because yeah, that's a perfect way to say it while you're in the movie, the action, the effects, even some of the corny comedy mm -hmm. distracts you from the fact that, yeah, this plot is it, piecemeal would be, uh, probably generous to, to me. The best way I can think of to define this is a junk food buffet. Like it's like, and I know a lot of like eighties, nineties action movies are kind of like junk food, but like this one to me is the one of the quintessential like pent ultimate junk food buffets where it is just as you're eating it and consuming it like oh my god it's so much fun look at the mutants look at the visual effects oh my god what did he just pull out of his nose all these one-liners like you're just bombarded with you know all these different sweets and stuff and then you know sweet and savory and then afterward you go to leave and you've got a stomach ache and you're you're like why did i eat that <laughs> all of that was a mistake <laughs> Interesting. I think this is going to be a pretty good review then, because I think I'm a little more pro Total Recall than you are. Like I said, I think when we get to the end, I, you might hear me flip a little bit back, but we'll get into the like the objective and subjective looking at this movie. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Before you know, when we started, we you know our new format, we have our, our five point inspection. So we still do our best not to talk about the movies at all, tip our hands, but we still have you know the subject matter we we really want to hit on the first one you hit me with right off the bat was average joe is that where you want to start with this or did you want to start somewhere else well i will say i feel like average joe will feed into bohemian rhapsody okay so we can save average joe if you would like okay i'll start with book report because i think it'll be quick and easy so essentially you know, when the movie opens up, the first thing I see is Philip K. Dick, which is a prolific sci-fi writer. Tons of movies that people know and love are based off of his short stories. And I say based because they are typically very loosely based. Um, Fight Club is a Philip K. Dick, if I'm not mistaken. I know no. my... 
uh, I was just saying. No, Fight not, Club is Chuck Palahniuk. You're right. Uh, Fight Club is Chuck. Um, Minority Report, Blade Runner, um, Total Recall. All of those are Philip K. Uh, Scanner Darkly. Oh, don't forget Paycheck, starring Ben Paycheck, Affleck. Paycheck. Paycheck is another one. All of those are Philip K. Dick. Um, you know, just prolific sci-fi. Right? I don't know why I threw Fight Club in there. Um, but again, most of them are are, are fairly loosely based on his stuff. Um, this might be one of the loosest um, because I know the short story that this is based off of, and this is a, a classic movie where um, I don't know what teacher we'd have that would ask you to read and you would watch the movie um, at that age. But you know, if you're a little Travis Santana and you have to do a book report on, um, I believe the short story is we'll sell you your memories at wholesale or something like that. It's along those lines. Right. Um, you, you would be way off. Like the teacher would know immediately that you did not read the short story, like, cause it is so drastically different. So th this was just one of those, I think it's funny seeing this through the, the late eighties, early nineties, where they, apparently they had been floating this script around from in the, since the late seventies and just seeing where the movie ended up. I'm like, it is so far removed from the themes of the short story. It's insane. Cause the short story is much more around memory and kind of, I guess like the identity and stuff like that. Whereas this one winds up throwing in mutants and aliens and Mars and like all like, well, Mars is in the original one, but like, it's just, it is crazy. The deviation that this took from the source material. Yeah. And I don't, I've not read the short story. I read the wiki description just to be passingly familiar with it. Um, there's a root of a great story there. I do agree from what I read on the synopsis, you needed more. They were right to introduce another element, but they introduced like six or seven more elements. Yeah. Well, and I think that's... And it, it, amazingly, this movie is still under two hours. <laughs> yeah. I think that's just in a lot of Philip K. Dick's stuff. They're short stories, and for whatever, they use that as a source material or as a foundation, but like... Total Recall is a great example of like they shove a bunch of stuff in there that is just it doesn't feel like it fits at all. Like I'm trying to figure out where exactly they were going with all this. So I think that is an excellent transition into still bulging um, because that is where I wanted to get into <laughs> everything that they shoved into this movie <laughs> is there is there are so many weird themes and things going on in the movie Um it starts off, you're on Earth, and oh God, I just, I tried to explain the movie to to Kate after watching it. Like, it was hard for me to explain it because it's so convoluted. Because the premise somehow from beginning to end, spoiler alert, um, so he's a, a Mars secret agent trying to infiltrate the mutant psychic rebellion against the Mars government. So they send him to Earth with implanted memories, thinking he's lived there for eight years as a construction worker. Well, can I pause you real quick? Uh-huh. I don't think that's exactly what happened. I, I think he was infiltrating, but Quato and the psychics, they would know if he was a mole. Right. So I, the subtext to me is they... They tried a new approach, basically make it look like he was falling in love with Melina and the Resistance and then was kidnapped. Is that right? Yes. And okay, then continue, sorry. And then okay, but this is again where it gets into the convoluted part. So at that point he's Quaid. So then they erase part of when he's Quaid's memories to send him to Earth so that when he's on Earth he thinks 
it's just I'm as I'm talking through it, I guess because here's the part I'm like, okay, so they sent him there as a retirement plan because they didn't want to kill him, but then he winds up with Iron um what's his face? Uh Michael Richter. Ironside? Ironside's yeah, I was the actor, I was trying to remember the actor's character. Riker, his girl. And I'm like, is this at first I was Richter. like, is this Richter? I was like, is this like a cuck thing going on here? Where like he's like watch because as soon as he like lays one on the chick, I'm just like, what is going on in this movie? Like, what is the relationship? And then like, so you've got that. So I'm like, why did she have to go undercover as his lover? Like, that's never really explained. Like, was that a short term thing and then i'm like why not just implant those memories in his head to begin with why do you even have to make him live on earth why couldn't you just implant the memories that he did live on earth for eight years because he didn't live like there's just there's so much convoluted where i'm like i don't understand the motivations of any of what they did in the movie like it seems like a classic example of going around your elbow to get your thumb for the same end result like it was just crazy to me well i think the part that you're missing is the fact that Richter and Cohagen, despite being on the same team, Cohagen does not trust Richter at all. Right. So he's purposely keeping him in the dark on the real plan. So that's why I think the whole wife plot is there, I think, even though as I say that, I lose confidence. <laughs> because then I go back to why did they need to send him to Earth at all? Like it made sense in the source material. Because they retire him on Earth, and that's his, like, he doesn't, it's not a matter of they're going to, like, you know, what is it, Manchurian Candidate, like, they're not going to activate him later, like, and then, that made sense in the source, and this, it doesn't make sense why they put him on Earth, it makes no sense to send him to Earth, you could have just had him kidnapped and kept him on Mars, I feel like it's very expensive to send him to Earth, and not only that, it implies that Earth and Mars have different governments, so that's another thing, is like Richter, when they're just shooting up Earth, I'm like, apparently the agency has a lot of pull, because that's not something they're worried about getting out in the news and becoming an issue, like, it's just like, there's just a massive shootout with automatic weapons in a subway, in like, the first, you know, act of the movie. Yeah, and I guess my last real part that just dawned on me that doesn't make sense it seems like everybody involved wants Quaid to just be Quaid and not remember anything and live a normal construction life. Mm -hmm. But if that happens, Cohagen, his plan doesn't work because Quaid never goes back to unknowingly give up Quato. So yeah, right. That, that... <laughs> so so like, and this thing is like, and then when like they just randomly throw in mutants, like that's never brought up, like. As much as they love to do, like, the news exposition, oh, God, the 80s loved the news exposition. This is, I consider this an 80s movie because it was, it was shot and developed in the 80s. It just was released in the 90s. But, I'm like, the, the, it opens up with, of course, him watching the news that tells you all the backstory you need to know about, all the conflict that's going on. And I'm like, at no point do I think they mention mutants. Like, mutants just suddenly appear on screen. You're like, oh, what? Oh, and then he's, like, very nice to the little girl. And I'm like, oh, they, apparently they're just part of the environment and, like, there's no prejudice against mutants, which I think is weird. Um, that's definitely something that would happen in the movie being generated today. Um, but yeah, suddenly there's just mutants, and then like they just kind of sprinkle alien technology, and then that's how the whole movie climaxes is this weird alien paw button that makes no sense to me either. <laughs> and I'm just like, there's just so much in the movie where it is just 
again, we talk about connective tissue, like none of it makes sense. And it is, like I said before, they just string you along with these crazy visuals where like you see the mutant and Quato, like, oh, like, even the whole Quato thing made no sense to me because it's like, so he's a mutant inside a regular person or is it a regular, do they share the body? Because when Quato talks- They're conjoined twins. Right, so when Quato talks though, the other guy like loses function of the body and like Quato gets to use him. I'm just like, it may- <laughs> Because even even the conjoined twin goes, you gotta watch out because Quato, he's a mutant, implying that he's not a mutant who has Quato in his belly. Like he's not the robot from Ninja Turtles, and and Quato is Krang. Like it's like they're literally <laughs> the same organism. Like so, so much of it is just like none of it makes sense. But again, it's visually entertaining, and you have a ton of one-liners thrown throughout the movie that keeps you. I mean. The movie is is almost criminal with the the one-liners that it uses. Um, well, I, I want to push back real quick on the plot one more time. Mm -hmm. the The mutant thing is not unexplained. I took it that the mutants were mutants because they settled on Mars, and then Cohagen on the cheap developed these domes that did not protect them from radiations and that's how they became mutants yeah that's cohagen could give them the air but he could continue to sell it and again like any corporation he's going to try to save money with these shitty domes and that's just a side effect of that yes so let me take it back for a second when i say the mutants aren't explained what i mean is like when the mutants are introduced there's nothing that, that that sets you up for the first experience of the mutants like they're just suddenly there yes they do explain what why the mutants are there why they look the way they are and you know just they kind of have you know psychic side effects and stuff like that but like it's to me, I don't remember mutants being mentioned or implied in the movie at all until they appear on the screen. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's just a mutant person. Yeah, I guess I'm probably trying to carry too much water for the movie, but <laughs> Cohagen would not want the fact that there are mutants because of his negligence or intentional cost saving measures. Mm -hmm. He would not want that to be out in public for consumption so i know it's a movie so at least narratively you should set that up in some way but i don't have as much of a problem with it it's also weird because i feel like if i was cohagen like i would be hiring mutants because i feel like they'd be pretty valuable in my government system for interrogation like yes there's the one that turns on their people but like that seems like it's a pretty powerful thing to have if you can touch somebody and read their mind you know that if you could sway a couple more even just to keep the peace you know like i feel like it should be like a weird partner thing where every cop has like or every three cops there's like a a mutant in the in the group that they can use when talking to somebody on the street but again that's just me digressing and how i feel like the world would be a little like no, it, the introduction of mutants is a, weird it's a fair point too especially in your open which now you're gonna have to leave it in brett the most <laughs> precious commodity on mars is air but if you were a real greedy businessman, the most valuable commodity on Mars are people who can read motherfuckers' minds. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you can yeah, even from that, that makes complete sense. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there's just yeah, and there's just so much in the reason I I titled this "Still Bulging" is another thing I just want to touch on. I don't understand the obsession with with Arnold Schwarzenegger's Arnold dick. dick in this movie. Like, and that's another thing that happens throughout the movies. Like pacing gets completely broken up and this might be a great transition just to go into arnold um 
because his delivery, his lines, like there's times like it breaks the tension, I think, completely. Any, and this isn't a shot at Arnold. It's just he's in action. He's not there for the serious stuff. So like there's times where there's like there should be a real connection between two characters. And like just the way he delivers the line is it's it's almost comical. Like it's like, oh, this is kindergarten cop. I'm watching kindergarten cop on Mars. You know, it's just that level of delivery where it is just kind of he can't hit the serious notes that he needs to. But yet he was kind of shoehorned into this role. And I have you know feelings, the motivations behind it. But I'm going to let you kind of jump into Average Joe. Yeah. And you know what? The thing is, in the short story, Douglas Quayle, uh, he was an office worker, correct? He just said the definition of an everyman. Yeah, in the, in the original short story, yes, he was yeah just an office worker. So here's where I think you're approaching this movie all wrong, Brett. You're looking at yes, Arnold is not a strong actor. There's a reason that his best role, he's playing a robot. <laughs> I mean, it, it just works perfectly. But do you enjoy Arnold movies in general? I think that's the million dollar question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, give me your three favorite Arnold movies. Ooh, Terminator, Jingle All the Way, um, and Around the World in 90 Days. I appreciate you taking this exercise seriously, <laughs> Brett. <laughs> uh, if I'm going to go... I was going to say... Yeah. I don't. Oh, do I, I, don't I don't. I don't. I don't. Now? I don't get. To, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. So make your point. <laughs> so my point is, if you like Arnold, if you enjoy things like Commando, uh, True Lies, Predator, um, Predator, this is elevated Arnold. If you're trying to look for a real serious sci-fi movie, if you're trying to get Denny Villeneuve's Blade Runner twenty forty nine. This ain't it. But it's one of the best Arnold movies, and to me, that makes it at least a very good movie. Because right. if you view it through an Arnold lens, you're like, wow, this is a complex plot. Like, these are great concepts. Like, the the way I interpreted Quaid and Hauser, you know, because Hauser is the real person, I guess. Is that what you... What? So that's movie. where we can get it. And that's another one where I thought it was a more interesting theme to go off of that they didn't was, is is Arnold's body just a husk? And it's irrelevant as to whose memories are in it, as to who is actually real. Because the minute Quaid decides to not take on Hauser's memories, Hauser essentially dies. Like, it's not like, I guess he's stored in a computer, but like, he's not living. He's not alive. So that to me was one of those like, is, is it the body or the memory that makes the person? Because if that's the case, I would say Quaid is the real person at the end, and Hauser is essentially in the ether. And, I mean, Quato literally delivers that line, as you yeah. recall. So, uh, but I wanted to touch on, I think it's interesting, the concept of, I mean, you, you kind of said it better than I was going to, is his body just a husk? But just the fact that at the end of the movie, Quaid feels so betrayed, but he's been betrayed by who he really is. I just, in a movie oh, so overstuffed, I feel like that was the theme mm -hmm. they should have hit on. Absolutely. I think that's, and that's, I guess that's the problem. It's like, 
I think you could have done even with Arnold in the in the driver's seat, you know, I think you could have done so much more with that rather than trying to shove all of the other stuff in, like the the air supply and all that, where it ultimately and I guess they tried to had to had to make some kind of motivation for, you know, some you know, again, villain or something like that. But at the end of the day, I just I don't think they hit on enough of that. It's just even to the point where like when he decides he wants to be Quaid, he still doesn't have the majority of Quaid's memories. He's just decided that that's the person he wants to be, you know, in the moment. And that might be because in that moment, he's the hero. Like, he's been nice to the mutants. He gets to save the planet. He's got the girl, you know. He already killed the blonde that, you know, he had been feeding his dick. So, um, that's a direct line from the movie. Um, so, uh, excuse my crassness. But, um... You know, I think in, even that would have been kind of a, an interesting to, thing to explore was like, did he want to be Quaid? Because in that moment, Quaid seemed to be like the more like he gets to be the hero, whereas he would have to start over to be Hauser, you know? Right. And I was also thinking that to mention Arnold's greatest role, which is the Terminator, we'll just pretend like there was only two, because as far as I'm concerned, there was only two Terminators, but... He In 1984, he plays one of the greatest movie villains of all time. And in 1991, he plays one of the greatest movie heroes of all time. So having Quaid versus Hauser, I feel like there's an opportunity there. But the problem is, like you said, Arnold can't pull off two different characters. Mm -hmm. He can pull off two different robots that act the exact same way. One just tries to kill the good guys. But it would be interesting to see an actor who had more range – and get a little bit more, hey, Hauser was a real son of a bitch, here's Quaid, and, and contrast those two behaviors. Because when Arnold is Hauser delivering information to Quaid, there's no difference in those two people. I think there's, and I think he tried, because I think he tried to play Hauser as a more confident person, whereas he tried to play Quaid as the, oh, he's the every, every, he's more vulnerable. And like, again, it's just, that's not, what Arnold doesn't have that range. I think he tried, I just don't think that that was... That's not his his specialty, you know. He's that's not going to be who he is. Like you didn't get a loving side of Arnold because even in his vulnerable side, he still was mowing people down with a machine gun and smashing their heads together. It's like so it's it's hard, and I guess that's the problem. Is like when you it was like how we made jokes about Tango and Cash about how they made Sylvester Stallone softer by putting glasses and saying he traded stocks. It's like when you have somebody who's so big like Arnold it's hard to try and make them into a more vulnerable character. And like, I think they even tried to do that with a lot of the, the set design because aside from, or not set design, sorry, the costume design, because aside from the fact at the beginning when he is using the jackhammer and it shows just his gigantic bulging muscles, the rest of the movie, they pretty much cover him up. Like they don't expose really any of his mus muscular physique and he's in very baggy clothing. So it's, I think it's very intentional for him to not look that, you know, strong or overbearing or powerful. Like they're trying to do that. But again, you cast Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, that's that's what you're, you're literally getting that package, which is referenced multiple times in the movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. Number let me just side note. Uh, if you watch Terminator 2, there's also a gratuitous 
uh, woman checking out his dick. So I think that's more of an Arnold thing. I think he be. wants to show off his arms in every movie mm. and then at least have another character comment on how big his penis is. It, it very well but, could be. But here's what I'll say. And this might transition into Bohemian Rhapsody. If it does, feel free to go there. But the reason I'll still forgive this movie a little bit more, as, as wooden as Arnold is, all of the real fantastical stuff, his feats of strength, his ultraviolence, occur after he's at recall. So, again, if I'm talking about this as elevated Arnold... In Commando, he's also killing 800 people in like 10 minutes. But in that movie, there is no possibility that this is a computer simulation or an implanted memory. So it seems extra ridiculous. But in this movie, if I just am like, hey, maybe this is all secret agent vacation stuff. And that's why he's pulling all this amazing, typical Arnold shit off. I feel like it just adds an extra layer. Mm hmm. I'm trying to so think. I, I don't know if that if you look at it through that lens, does that make anything better for you? Slightly. Um, I'm trying to think of because you say elevated Arnold, and I'm trying to think of what's the movie he's in with Danny DeVito where is like Doctor Mom or fuck, what's it called? It's not Junior. Junior. I wouldn't Ring mind. Is pregnant. Yeah, I wouldn't mind looking at that as we're talking about trying to find a more sensitive side of Arnold. Um, and what year did Junior come out? I assume it... 96. Jun Junior was 94, so that's four years, okay. released four years after this. So you're starting to see Arnold try and, you know, Jingle All the Way was 96. Um, so you're trying to see him actually demonstrate some range and that he's not just a muscle head. So I, I would think it would be fun, not our next go, and then even Kindergarten Cop was 1990, for God's sake. Um, it'd be interesting to go and actually look at, at roles where Arnold is is specifically chosen to not play a muscle man and see if like this was kind of the start you know as you're saying like this is elevated arnold this is where he really tries to break away and is not just an action hero you know yeah and you know one of the things i love about arnold is he's self-aware I think he purposely chose to work with great directors as much as possible because he realized he could not afford to act in a movie that didn't have great direction. I mean, mm. he's Paul Verhoeven, I feel is, is a great director. James Cameron, there's no doubt he's a great director. Uh, and he worked with Cameron multiple times. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like he was always very specific in his choices to make sure that they accented his strengths and minimized his weaknesses. Well, so the reason he kind of got set up for this movie was because he was originally cast, I guess, or he was trying to be RoboCop, which is, I'm sorry, what's the director's name? You know, the name. Uh, Paul Verhoeven. Verhoeven, yeah. Verhoeven did RoboCop. And originally, they were going to have Schwarzenegger as that, but the they were having a problem with the, the RoboCop suit fitting Arnold. And then after Arnold actually saw RoboCop, he's like, oh my, how much he loved RoboCop. He wanted to work with the director. And that's kind of how they got paired up to do a, a Total Recalls. Because, it, as you're, you know, just to point out what you're saying, like, he sees talent and wants to be associated with that. Right, yeah, and I mean, I think that's why the casting as much sense as it doesn't make. I don't think in 1990 it gets made without Arnold. 
Oh, and that was the other thing is I think the reason I was gonna say I think Arnold is put in this role is because to your I don't I think you have to have a big action hero in you have to have a huge name to make this kind of a movie because it, it was expensive. You know, it's it was sci-fi. In fact, that's actually why it took so long for the movie to be made is in the 70s as they were working on the script. So here's a fun fact. So in the 70s, while they were working on the script, they realized it was going to be too expensive to make the movie. So they scrapped it uh, or not scrapped it, but put it on the shelf and then started working on what would become Alien. Ah, I did not uh, know yeah, that. The, yeah, the, the, the screenwriters, um, yeah, they, they put it on the shelf and they wound up writing um, what would be Alien. Wow, that's quite the, I mean, I know you don't think much of this movie, but that's a nice sci-fi pairing to have under your belt. Yep. Yeah, it was it Ronald Chousette and Dan O'Bannon. Ah, uh, yeah, Dan O'Bannon. I recognize that name from the Alien franchise. Yep. So there's a lot of like weird connections around that time with like people trying to make stuff, couldn't get it. So they work with somebody else to get this made. And like, there was just a lot of like fun. Interesting enough, the eighties was a lot of fun. Sci-fi came out Um, because I forget who it was worked on blade. I think you guys said Dan O'Bannon worked on alien, which was directed by Ridley Scott, who then did blade runner, which was also based off of a Philip K. Dick book. (laughs) So, again, it's like these weird circles that kind of go in on themselves. <laughs> so, can we, you feel like we, it's a good time to get to Bohemian Rhapsody? Let's do it. Let's get, now that I've sidetracked us with, you know, uh, useless trivia, let's do some Bohemian Rhapsody. So, now I originally, Brett, go ahead and tell the audience what I came to you with, and you've smartly upgraded to Bohemian Rhapsody. So, so originally, you wanted to call this point, is this dream, or or is is this a reality? I'm going to fuck up oh, the lyric. God, I, I thought you knew it, Brett. I thought you were a Queen fan. Uh, oh, I am. Is this a dream, or is this reality? No. Nope. No. Is but this real life, life, or is this or a reality? Or is this fantasy? No, no, fuck it up again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you can see so that I'm not away again. I, I want to let you lead it off. What's the question? Did I know the lyrics? Obviously not. <laughs> do you believe how much of this movie is reality? Do you believe all of it is? Yes. Do you believe that? I think this movie wanted to be more clever. And I don't know if it's because I've seen movies like Inception, where at the end you really are like you could have a debate as to what you think is and isn't. I think this I don't think this movie laid enough breadcrumbs for me to believe that it wasn't all real. And then I know. Wait, wait, let me clarify. Mm -hmm. Your interpretation based on evidence is that this is all reality. Yes. In a sci-fi world. Okay. Continue. I just wanted to clarify. So I know that there are, there's two main points that you can, you can argue that this could be fake. And that is, there is the scene where the the guy comes to him at the hotel and essentially he's got the, you know, Quaid has the uh, the gun pointed to his head and he basically describes the rest of the movie where he's like, if you shoot me, the walls are going to come in on you at which point, um, you know, you'll wind up saving the girl or, or I think he says, but you'll become an outcast. You'll wind up realizing that you're actually in cahoots with uh, Cohagen and basically spells out the rest of the movie um and it all plays out exactly that way he shoots him the walls come in because operatives come in he winds finding out that he is you know 
Quaid isn't the actually, bad guy. Yeah, is, yeah, he is actually the bad guy, and then ultimately does wind up saving everybody and becomes the the savior of the planet, all that, or whatever. So there's that, and then the movie ends with kind of like the bright light, like oh, is that him being lobotomized at the end of it? So like, there's, I think they wanted to do that to where the audience there would be a discussion. I just don't think there's, there's one more you missed. Which which one did I miss? Uh, when he's first undergoing the procedure. Obviously, secret agent on Mars, they describe, again, the plot of the movie. But right before he goes under, one of the technicians is like, oh, blue skies on Mars, that's new. And this movie also ends with them producing air, which somehow instantly turns the sky blue, but whatever. So those three things, it makes a pretty powerful case to me that this is Quaid in the chair. So you don't think there was a um, fuck? What's his face? What was his? Well, who was Antiquade? Hauser. Hauser. God, I can't. I should be able to remember Doogie Hauser, right? I cannot get Hauser. Um. So you don't think that there was a Hauser? Hauser did not exist. Hauser. No, I don't. I think Hauser was just part of the simulation. Just part of the simulation. Okay. I mean, it would make sense with how convoluted the rest of the movie is. Again, I exactly. just... I just... I don't want to give it credit for being that smart. And I don't know, maybe... But I think you're only saying that because it stars Arnold. But no, no, Arnold no. didn't write it. And Arnold no, no, no. didn't direct it. Listen, I'll say I had a problem with how stiff Arnold was, and I think a different person should have been cast there, but Arnold had nothing to do with how convoluted the rest of the plot is. Um, with the, the, the aliens and the, what is it, the mutants in the machine that when it melts ice, it creates oxygen, which, not a huge chemist, but I know that when water, ice melts, it just becomes water vapor, which is still H2O, not O. Um... So, like, there's a lot of that stuff where I'm just like, I just don't, I think it was an an 80s action movie, and they didn't bother to really focus on that stuff, rather than giving it credit that it was a loose simulation, and the focus was his, you know, his, his take on it, because he wasn't there for two weeks, like the simulation would say. At the beginning, it said it would be a two-week getaway. Wait, how do we, is I guess I guess it could expand. I guess it could expand beyond that. So, yeah. No, I, no, no, I'm saying, in the movie, is there an indication that that's, the events are taking longer than two weeks? Uh, I guess they don't have anything that specifically plays it out. But in my mind, I'm thinking the way that it breaks down. There's no indication of the the amount of days that have passed. It feels like it, it's a pretty straightforward. Like this occurred over the, the course of a few days. My interpretation, obviously. Fair enough. I, but you know what? It's interesting, and I like that we're at a little bit of a loggerheads because mm-hmm. I think that's going to be, and we can probably touch on it at the, the end segment, but your enjoyment of this movie, the mileage may vary. Um, because I, I want to say I was watching the movie with somebody who had never seen it and uh, is a little bit younger. She laughed out loud at Quato. <laughs> she thought that was the dumbest shit ever. Mm-hmm. And I thought Quato was amazing. That's like the most memorable part of this movie for me right there with the robot fat lady. I thought you going to say the three-breasted woman, but yeah, sure. You know, I wish I had three hands. 
<laughs> um, You're doing just fine with it. But two. yeah, again, that just kind of shows the mileage may vary. Some people might find this movie silly as fuck, and you're closer to that demographic. But then some people might say, hey, this is Bronze Arnold, like Terminator, Predator, this. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and hit the last point that I wanted to make real quick, and then we can jump into uh, some choppy chop. So the last thing we had was faux noir. And the real point I wanted to, to get across this is I feel like this was a movie that had a little bit of a mistaken identity because I feel like they wanted to go down almost the Blade Runner film noir, like he's trying to discover his past type thing. Um, you know, he's having to put together the clues and the pieces, but none of the way the movie is shot in terms of like lighting or scenes or anything like that adds to that tension at all of us trying to figure it out with him. And I guess that's why I, I argued that I think it's all real. And it's like there, I don't think the movie was clever enough to, to, to create that suspension that, oh my God, it could go either way because it is just so action heavy. And to me, like as he's figuring things out, like, the, uh, the bar is a great example to me. I've never seen a bar or brothel lit that well before in my entire life, whether it's in person or in, in any kind of media I've consumed. Like that is like that bar that they visited was so bright and clean. And it's just like, that's not what a bar looks like, you know, even clean yeah, bars by design, are. Yeah. You, they want you in there making poor choices. Yeah. So it's stuff like that where I'm like, that happens, and then again, just going throughout the whole thing, like, I just, I don't think the use of shadow is done very well. Even, like, when they're in the cave system, the caves seem very bright. Like, the whole movie itself is very bright, and to me, it wanted to kind of borrow or play off of film noir, but wound up just deciding to lean heavily into action and hoping that, like, film noir, like, some of that mystery kind of fell into place. And I just, I don't think it did. And I think that, hopefully, that kind of gives a little bit more justification as to why I do not think at the end. And I think it was also a little too far on the nose, where it's one of those, like, but what if I'm in a dream? It's just, well, if it is, hurry and kiss me. And I'm like, it's just a little too corny, where I'm like, okay, like, I, I think they're, it's not trying to be clever. It's just trying to be corny, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you're right. That last beat, that's not the way to end the movie. It should have been a little more sinister and have you questioning things, not this, let's cram in a romance line. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, but it's pretty obvious why that is. I feel like the script that was worked on in the 70s and had to get shelved was one thing, and then Arnold becomes interested, and now we have to kind of make it slightly into an Arnold movie. Yeah. Like, we're always yeah. complaining about the Ford versus Ferrari mm -hmm. phenomenon of having too many hands in the pot, uh, you know, too much I, this part of the script is from this person, et cetera. It, it feels like this is a sci-fi noir like Blade Runner, mm -hmm. and then it's stapled on to Predator. Yeah. And if, that's why that happens. If they had wanted to end this movie where, I, like, I would have questioned if it was real or not, I would have used sound design. And the last thing you would have heard, it, you would have seen machinery around, but it would have used the exact same sounds that the recall machine used when it was, op like, when it was operating on Arnold. To where it's one of those, like, wait, was that the recall sound? Like, was 
is he coming out of the recall or is it the machinery that's all around him where it's like it is it creates that discussion like what was that sound what like and that to me would have been a much more clever way to make me consider maybe this wasn't real maybe this was a recall yeah you're right uh, if, if this movie were made today that would be the move i haven't seen the remake have you seen the remake <laughs> So this isn't a shot against the remake, okay? I have tried to watch the remake twice and fallen asleep both times, but to its defense, both times was like at midnight, I for some reason got an itch and was like, you know what? I think I'm going to try and put on the Total Recall remake and watch it. And both times I have fallen asleep somewhere in the movie where I need to completely rewatch it. So fun fact about it though, uh, and then well, if you had a point to have you seen it before I get off on topic? I have not. No, I was just curious. So here's the fun part. Apparently, apparently, Minority Report was supposed to be a Total Recall um, sequel starring Arnold again, using the mutants as essentially the precogs that were using their psychic abilities to try and prevent crimes. And they could not get all of the rights squared away to actually, and it was just in production hell. So what wound up happening, because Minority Report is based off of another Philip K. Uh, Dick book, and they were just going to kind of merge, I guess, the two properties together to make one universe. They couldn't get it off the ground, so they wound up making Minority Report with Tom Cruise, and then the, my, the Total Recall remake with Colin Farrell around the same time. Because they couldn't get, they couldn't get it to work. Well, oddly, Colin Farrell is in both. Yeah, which would make sense. <laughs> yeah, um, Minority Report, definitely the superior of that pair. Ooh, yeah, for sure. You shut me up! <laughs> uh, but yeah, you want to get in Chop Chop? Before we get into this week, I have to admit, I struggled. I got Oscar bait. You got horror. I struggled with this. I have, I kind of, I think, went the same route um, they did where I couldn't decide which direction I wanted to go in. So I kind of restructured mine in a weird way. I'll go first or last. I'll let you choose. Um, but basically, I started off with what I would have cut out, what I thought needed to be a little bit more focused on, just a couple bullet points. And then I essentially had... Uh, a, a pick your own adventure where I kind of took it into three different um, directions. Um, Wait, this is a pick your own adventure? Uh, not pick your own adventure. It's it's a I have it's it's a three pronged approach. You can choose the movie that you thought I should have focused more on, but chose not to. Okay, with that setup, I want to hear yours. All right. So here's my choppy chop Oscar bait. So the first thing I thought was we got to cut some shit out of this movie because let's face it, it is way too bloated. It's bulging. So no fake wife. The cuck situation with Riker made no sense. Cut that out. No mutants, no aliens. And I'm going to go ahead and take out the kind of environmental like uh, subtext with the, the air. Jesus. And Give me a second. All right. I wanted to right, focus. Right. I wanted to focus. So the things I think need to be built on a little bit was Riker and Quaid needed to have a better, like, I, w I won't say connection, but an understanding as to why Riker hated him, other than the fact that he screwed his... Wait, Riker? I keep saying... Richter? 
I don't know why I keep saying Riker instead of Richter. I have it spelt out as Richter in my notes, but I keep saying Riker. Um, Richter, I'm thinking there needed to be some kind of like rivalry between the two of them that's established through some of the memories, or you know, Richter thinks he's a loose end and needs to be eliminated or something like that. Richter just didn't seem like, aside from being a hothead, had a whole lot of motivation to want to kill Quaid, even at the aside from the fact that he was, you know, porking his his girlfriend or whatever she was. I love that exchange. Um, so, and then we need to really focus on the memories and the uh, identity, right? So here's, here's my three, my three, uh, things. The theme first one was the past that haunts you at what level are people allowed a fresh start? The second one focuses on what's real. Is this fantasy caught on a landslide? No escape from reality. <laughs> um, open your eyes. Um, and then the last one was, um, we are who we are without our memories. So those are kind of the three paths, and now I'll go into the details of them. So the past haunts you. At what level are people allowed a fresh start? This one focuses more on Quaid wind up being... It's a little more closer to the source material. Quaid is an assassin for the Mars government. Um, basically, he has killed indiscriminately women, children, innocent. really didn't matter. So he's had all of these memories taken out of him. And he's kind of become a new person. He now has a conscience based off of the memories that were implanted into him. So throughout the movie, he basically, like, maybe very similar to the way this movie is. He winds up trying to do the vacation thing. It cuts something loose or sparks some memory. And realizes, that goes down this path to realize who he was prior to the new memories. And he has a hard time with his new memories and conscious dealing with the person who he actually was. Um, and then kind of goes back into the, are we just a husk? Do our memories define us? Or is it some form of the combination of the two? You know, it goes back to, you know, if, if you're this terrible person like Hauser was, it, should he be allowed a fresh start into that point? Like, is he even the same person? So that was kind of the path that one was going to go. Again, these are all very loose. Uh, let me, hold on. Mm-hmm. I love that. You already made me think of a movie. So I just want to say... If you got more to flesh out in that direction, I'm, I'm here with you. Okay. So next one is what's real, you know, what's fantasy. So Quaid has uh, so many memories implanted him in him that he has no idea what is real and what is not real, right? It is just like a rat's nest of memories in his head. So, uh, you know, whether he's an experiment or whatever, they just keep doing it. So film noir style detective work, he starts trying to go down and unravel which of these memories are real, which ones are not real, because he can't quite figure out what it is. He kind of keeps hitting dead ends. Every time he thinks he's really in a path, it winds up ending. Some of the memories start to intersect. He doesn't really know what's going on. Basically, by the end of this one, we realize that all of these memories are actually real memories and that he has essentially lived hundreds of lives over very short periods of time. So basically, he lives a particular life for maybe like six months or a year, and then it gets flushed out and a new memory, like he basically starts over. And now all of these memories are starting to converge and it basically he doesn't know who he is anymore. And again, this kind of idea of identity, you know. It kind of kind of comes back up you know who does he choose to be when he's had so many lives at the end of the day okay and then the last one is you know we are who we are without our memory so the movie starts out again very similar to that our you know 1990 total recall 
um, when he does go to the, on the Mars vacation, he starts to get um, back some of his repressed memories. Eventually, he is led to a lab where he finds chambers of just like kind of like zombie-like people. Like they're not zombies, but you know, they're just almost like brain dead, like basic motor functions, not really communicating or anything like that. Just tons of them all over the place. And basically, this is where he finds out that the government is we're on Mars. So this is never like he only thought he was on Earth. He's been on Mars the whole time. So he finds out essentially that the government has been creating fake memories and they inject them into anybody who is arrested or disturbs the peace to keep them more subservient to the government. Because ultimately what Mars realizes is they can't afford to lose manpower. So they can't be executing criminals or anything like that. They basically just try and redo their memories and repurpose them so that they can continue to try and colonize the planet. Because again, one of these main resources they have is this human aspect, you know? And ultimately what it all comes down to is that they need all these people to colonize because they want to, you know, basically start a war and claim their independence from earth so they no longer want to be you know a colony of earth mars is its own principality so so uh, they're basically australia they get they're an island full of convicts <laughs> yes exactly they just erase the convicts memories exactly so they erase their memory to try and make them reassemble back into society because they can't afford to lose the manpower so quaid winds up learning he has been reprogrammed at least three times <laughs> Um, the first time he ran as a pro-Earth politician in a small sector and they got rid of him, or they, they redid his mind. The second time, he was an enforcer for a Mars mob. And in the third time, he wound up uh, joining a resistance movement. Um, so basically, at the end of the movie, what realizes that with this being his fourth deviation, he's labeled as inherently rebellious and fundamentally ar- ar- anarchist. Anar- Man, that would have been really cool. Anarchist? If I- Thank you, Yes inherently rebellious fundamentally anarchist and is incapable of being assimilated in his plan for execution and then basically the movie ends with you know that whole thing are we are we who we are at our core do our memories really matter to to determine who we are does that define us or is like we are just naturally a certain kind of person like despite the number of times they redid his memories he always wound up being the same kind of rebellious anti-authority figure he was basically born a bastard. Yeah. Whereas the others were self-made men. I. This might be a little too inside baseball, but Brett, you, we had a phone conversation before this podcast. <laughs> Not particularly about this podcast. We briefly touched on the podcast. Uh huh. And again, I'm just going to call you a sandbagging son of a bitch. <laughs> I just because. Felt like- I didn't. Well, go- let me just say, yeah. I think you got two Oscar baits right there. Yeah. The the middle one, I, I was I could take it or leave it, mm-hmm. but the bookends, I love those. So I'm I'm ready to talk about either or both. Uh, and that's the problem is I don't know where to take them further than that. That was where I was kind I kind of got stuck with which direction I kind of wanted to take these in. So I don't know if this week I kind of get a, an L next to me. Because typically I like to try and do a full synopsis as to kind of break down each of the acts and what's going to happen. And ultimately I have That's the, fair. I have these, these very loose bulleted, like, okay, this is, this is where I, this is the message I, this is really what it came down to is mine where I just, this was the core message I wanted to, to say with my Oscar bait movie. I couldn't frame the story enough around it to get it there. Well, I want to talk about your first one mm-hmm. and, we probably won't have much to talk about if you haven't seen the movie, but have you seen 
and it, shit, it might have been the same year as Total Recall or a year after, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. I have not seen Unforgiven. Am I getting... Yeah, that silence is there for a reason. Okay, I was just saying, did I lose you or am I getting... Um, well, we'll just have to put it into a trilogy. I think that's what's going to have to happen. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to say too much if you haven't seen it, but it, it's kind of a postmodern Western a little bit. Fuck, another and Western. Clint Eastwood plays an over-the-hill cowboy <laughs> who's... Uh, he's got a kind of a bad past. He's done a lot of bad things, and the movie is a little bit about him reconciling with who he used to be and who he's trying to be now. Ooh, total reconcile. We just named that movie. (laughs) (laughs) And it would just be interesting to have that movie set in the future with this kind of total Mm -hmm. recall element, the recall mind implant thing. So Mm -hmm. yeah, without it, you know what, even more credit to you. If you haven't seen unforgiven, that means that that was whole cloth from your mind. So very impressive, sir. Appreciate it. So with my kind of half-assed, loose, you know, version of Chop Shop this week, I would love to hear your your Chop Shop because I will admit I would have loved to have gotten. I honestly I don't know what how I got why I got stuck on this. I think I would have almost had rather had any other genre aside from maybe family friendly to do this one. <laughs> yeah, I think you've got Oscar bait a couple times. I have. You? Yes, I have. I'm ready to I think not that's get by it. far the most challenging category. Uh, but yeah, my chop shop, you know, you mentioned you'd like to have a full three act structure. Mm-hmm. Me, if you've listened to previous podcasts, I'd like to really go in and describe opening scenes <laughs> and then lose steam and try to land the plane. <laughs> Just glider so in, baby. Just glider in. <laughs> okay. All right. So I got horror. What'd you call me? And uh, whores. <laughs> uh, I got the horror oh, got genre. It. So it's going to open with miners. They're working down in a, a cave, and uh, their target seems to be some sort of alien-looking door. It's got strange symbols on it, and they begin drilling into it. And as the drill pushes through the wall, they finally get through. A worker's pulled through the hole and people are screaming in terror and the cavern begins to shake and the lights begin to flicker. Is this rain of fire? And through the what's that? Is this rain of fire? With the dragons? Uh I love that movie. I hadn't thought about it, but <laughs> damn. Good pull, Brett. Good pull. So through the flashes of light, um, we see miners being ripped apart by kind of a you can tell they're creatures, but because of the flashing lights, you can't quite get your eyes on them. And uh, here's where we're going to meet Melina. She's one of the miners. Oh, I thought you could say she was one of the monsters. The podcast, did we? No, we did. We never mentioned her. She. That's because that's how unforgettable she was. That's not true. That was just me being <laughs> yeah, mean. So, Melina in, in Total Recall is the woman that Quaid's dreaming about and then meets on Mars. You saw the movie. You're listening to the review. I don't know why I felt the need to clarify that. So the miners are being ripped apart by some creatures that we can't quite make out. And we're going to meet Melina. And we're going to zoom in on her face and, like, all the carnage. 
the blood, it, it's being splattered over her face. She looks on in terror, and then the mind starts to collapse. And we cut to open credits. Um, so we're going to stick with the basic setup. Uh, Quaid's having dreams of Mars. Uh, these dreams naturally will be a little more horror, supernatural. But in the dreams, Melina is still present. And she's on the mining crew, and Quaid's there with her. Uh, and every time he has the dream, you know how when you have a dream, you wake up and you have like a sense of what you were supposed to do in the dream. Quaid has this overwhelming feeling that he he needs to stop the dig. Every time he's in the dream, he feels like he needs to stop it. But he always wakes up right as the mining crew start to drill into the cavern. Um, so Quaid's going to go to recall because he's just kind of bored with his life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um and he's gonna decide to go to Mars after that. So he's gonna arrive at the Martian Welcome Center or whatever. And there's gonna be some sort of exposition where he discovers this mining town that's been abandoned. Like nobody goes there, they say it's dangerous. Um, so Quaid, he's like, you know what? The mine was in my dream. I'm going to this mining town that everybody avoids. So he gets a spacesuit, he rents a Martian SUV, and he heads for the mining town. Uh, so we, we might have a travel montage, whatever. Quaid arrives at the town, and it's located at the base of a, a small mountain, and in that mountain is the mine. And to Quaid's amazement, as he pulls up, he sees a campfire up on the hill. And Brett, do you know why a campfire would be weird on Mars? Because there's no oxygen? No oxygen, Brad. You guessed it. So he's like, what is this? What is this? He's going to walk up the hill and he's trying to get closer to the fire and see what's going on. And as he walks up, he looks down and he sees it's human remains along the trail. You got a skull, you got a leg bone. And uh, as Quaid gets closer to the fire, something out of the shadow jumps out and attacks him. And the creature's wildly clawing at his spacesuit trying to like smash the glass, just smashing it. And, and Quaid, I mean, he's a big dude, but he's still struggling to fight off what appears to be just a, a female human, but she seems supernaturally strong and almost feral. And finally, the creature breaks the helmet and, and Quaid starts to panic. You know, he starts to choke and then he realizes, wait, he can breathe. And his helmet being broken also reveals his face to the creature who abruptly stops attacking him. And the creature had glowing eyes, but they kind of soon returned to normal. Ooh. Who do you think the creature is, Brett? I think it's going to be another miner. A very specific miner, though. Is it Melina? It's Melina, Brett. Did you get that? Yeah, that's a, I, I, I like that. So this is where we're going to break into exposition. We're going to get the backstory from the mine, because Melina is going to be an exposition machine here. And she's going to tell you that when the cavern was disturbed in search of ancient Mar Martian artifacts, we learned that they had discovered an underground doorway created by an ancient Martian civilization. And when the door was opened, it released disembodied spirits or ghosts, Ooh. which took possession of the miners, one of them being Melina. But Melina's love for Quaid allowed her to break free to explain all of this. 
And uh, she'll also explain that the Martian artifact was partially exposed in the mine collapse, and that's why there's air around the mountain. But it's only partially exposed, so, you know, basically a mile in any direction is all you've got as far as oxygen. So Quaid, he's going to be working for Cohagen, just like in Total Recall. But Cohagen knew what would happen. He knew that once they broke into that, that, that alien tomb, that bad shit was going to happen. So he had Quaid leave right before. And uh, same as the movie, you know, he's a tool of how, you know, he's Hauser, the whole Cohagen thing. Uh, and the rest of the possessed minders don't trust him. So basically him and Melina have to go on the run. Melina's like, this is the man I love. I'm going to defend him. But the rest of the minders are like, no, we're creepy zombie mutants. We want to kill him. But Melina's like, hey, if we can just meet with Quato, he'll realize that you're a good guy and this will be fine. So the middle of the movie would be them being pursued by some of the miners. That would give you the chance for the supernatural horror and the scares. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to rush through to the end of the movie. So Belina and Quaid make it back to the temple. They're close to Quato, but they're pinned down by the mutants. They're about to be killed. And finally, Quato arrives. It's going to be the first time you see him in the movie. And he calls off the miners. And, and Quato provides some more exposition. He explains that the miners opened a Martian construction in the soil, which unleashed a red dust. And those who breathe that red dust, they became violent psychopaths. They started to build weapons and kill the uninfected, uh, which were like mining leadership, people that were outside the, the mine, but still directing them. So they killed everybody because they changed genetically. They became kind of monsters, much stronger than humans. Uh, and the miners are distrustful of the outside world, invading their oxygen-rich paradise. So they kill any intruder. But Quato, he's got that psychic ability. And he can tell that Quaid's mind's been altered. So my complaint about Total Recall was like, if Quato was a psychic, he should still be able to realize that a memory's been erased, in my opinion. So in my version, Quato knows that Quaid's up to no good. But Quato kind of reiterates his line. He's like, you are what you do. A man is defined by his actions, not his memory. So Quato's been impressed by the fact that Quaid has been defending Melina and protecting her against the mutants and genuinely trying to get to Quato and plead their case. So Quato says, hey, go back to Cohagen. Um, we're going to completely uncover the artifact and provide air to all of Mars and Cohagen will never profit from it and tell Cohagen about these miners. He should never come here for revenge or he'll be ripped apart and Quaid declines and he's going to protect his new family and he's going to stay with the mutants. And that's it. Roll credits. I like that a lot. I like that you managed to put in the supernatural elements, but at the same time, it wasn't just ghosts. Like, I mean, it's almost like a Martian Indian burial ground type thing. But, uh, no, that was yeah, awesome. And we don't have a large audience, but before anybody says it, Brett, mm -hmm. I uh, pretty much stole a lot of the plot of John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've had the pleasure of seeing that shitty ass movie. Oh, I have. Oh, I have. 
I, so yeah, I'm, if anything seems vaguely familiar, that's I'm, why. I'm sad I didn't pick up on it sooner. <laughs> yeah, part of my description was literally a rip from the Wikipedia. That is fantastic. So yeah, there you go. I mean, you said there was going to be a punchline. It was a good one. I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, so. I, I was hoping at some point you were going to be like, this sounds like... <laughs> Ice Cube and Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> oh. righty, sir. You ready to do some Blue Book? Absolutely. righty. This, the market value, this movie came in at a $65 million budget. All right. And 1990, well, it was released in 1990. I think I believe they began shooting in 1988 or something like that. So trying to you know, think of the, the times. So how much do you think this movie made in the theaters, U.S. and Canada? Cost 65 mil to make. Um, I'm going to say 109 million. Very close, sir. You're only 10 million off. 119 million. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to guess worldwide what Total Recall brought in? This may be erroneous, but I feel like because Paul Verhoeven is involved, maybe the international gross would be a little bit higher. So this is the total gross total, from U.S. and Canada, yeah. and then we're adding the rest of the world. Is yes. that right? Yeah, it is total total worldwide gross. I'll say $182 million. It almost doubled. Or it actually more than doubled. Two hundred and sixty-one million dollars is what this brought in worldwide. Damn. Yeah. So it was a success. I don't know if that's the Paul Verhoeven effect, but yeah, it was absolutely a success. So now let's get into one of my favorite segments. I'm not going to speak for you, but tag and title. I'm going to give you three taglines, Travis. One of the taglines is from 1990s Total Recall. One is from a movie I find adjacent, and one... Is it 2012 Total Recall? One, and I'm not going to say anything, Travis. I, you know, <laughs> I'm not a one-trick pony. Uh, and one is a, 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 a tagline that I made up myself. So here we go. Are you ready to play tag and title? Hit me. All right. Come back to Mars. What is real? That's 2012's What Total is real? Recall. What is real? And how would you know if someone stole your mind? Hmm. Okay, you, you made it a lot more difficult than I anticipated. <laughs> I think you made up how would you know if someone stole your mind. Okay. That's, do you think that one's mine? And obviously I said the first one is 2012 Total Recall. Okay. So you think what is real is 1990s Total Recall. Yeah, I don't know that that's a great tagline, but I think that's the one based on process elimination. Final so, answer. Final answer. You got a real scramble up there. You got all of them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, lobotomize me, Brad. Yeah, I'm going to lobotomize you right now. What is real was the 2012 tagline. 
how are Terrible. how would you know if someone stole your mind was the original 1990 and come back to mars was mine i might have done that just to throw you off <laughs> hey, mission accomplished <laughs> So I did want to bring up a couple things I thought was interesting with the taglines because this one had a bunch of taglines. And I think the tone of all of them I thought was really interesting because I feel like this movie was marketed very differently. It, um, so, you know, the, the original was, how do you know someone stole your mind? Then there is a, how would you know after memory implantation if your mind is yours? Very long, very clunky. Don't know where that was used at all. They stole his mind. Now he wants it back. And that's what I think is the most interesting because that's a completely different tone of movie. That's a John Wick in space. Like, that's a revenge flick. You know, they stole his mind. He wants it back. Like, that's also not what happened. That's, that's he what I was say. voluntarily that's, gave his mind up, ultimately. Yeah. He doesn't even yeah, realize really what happened until the end of the movie. So I'm like, that doesn't fit. That was just, that's where they went full action. Like, they went full action with that tagline. The next one was get ready for the ride of your life also means nothing to this movie whatsoever. I thought maybe they were trying to play off of the recall machine, but that yeah. I, I thought that was piss poor. And then the last one was, what would you do if someone stole your mind? And again, all of all of the stole your mind don't really work because his mind wasn't stolen, but um, I just thought it was interesting the way those felt more like a, a film noir-esque, whereas the they stole his mind, now he wants it back, felt very action-oriented. Yeah, and I mean, the problem is a lot of those taglines are interesting, but that's not the movie. Mm -hmm. Like, they're great one-sentence setups to maybe a more traditional sci-fi intellectual kind of movie mm -hmm. but again this is not that this is half sci-fi half just arnold action movie yep so you want to do some timeline some time pod some time machine some time capsule <laughs> i got there yeah i'm gonna leave this one brief uh because we've run long but did you recognize the uh, like the secondary the right-hand man to Quato, the mutant with the half kind of vagina face. <laughs> no. The one that was in the bar that got shot in the shoulder? Yes. Okay. And, mm. and like, he was the one that moved to help hide them? Yes. Uh, uh, no. Who? I, I don't recall. Have you watched Breaking Bad? I have. That's Hank. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's Dean Norris. Huh. And oddly enough, he's in Terminator 2, so I'm wondering if Arnold developed any sort of friendship with him on set, because literally the next year he's working with him again, albeit in another kind of small part. Yeah, that's really interesting. Did not know that. Hmm. Yep, so there you go. Cool. Well, you I want to move into our final thoughts. Yeah, we'll go final thoughts here. Uh, do you want to go first or would you like me to give final thoughts to the movie? Uh, I'll go first. All righty. This is a I don't own the movie. Um, it's always been kind of second tier Arnold for me. 
But after this viewing, I'll firmly move it into first tier Arnold. Uh, and especially working with a director like Paul Verhoeven, who also did Starship Troopers. I don't know if you realize that. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's some real 90s gore there. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate Ver- I think Verhoeven is often viewed as just a violence director. But violence and but sex is what does- I've noticed in a lot of his stuff. Agreed, but I think the thing he does the best is satire. I mean, you think about RoboCop, I'd buy that for a dollar. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of that kind of stuff in this movie, and Starship Troopers is replete with that kind of satire of the media and war and the way the media covers war. Mm -hmm. So when you combine, in my mind, the greatest action star in the history of cinema and a director that's willing to be subversive and weird, that's automatically at least a good movie for me. And I am particular to Arnold. I'm particular to... Verhoeven so this is a if the special features are right it's a must own for me but again like I said earlier your mileage may vary I can understand why people would think this is just kind of a convoluted shitty 80s action movie even though it came out in 90 yeah so my hot take is I I watched this rented it on Amazon Prime or whatever Amazon whatever you do that's where I got it I rented it from but I I probably will not own this movie, even if it's bargain bin, because I don't see it as a movie I would come back to very frequently. I will say this is a movie I think people should watch. Um, I think that culturally there's a lot. This movie did a lot, especially with the special effects for its time. Um, I think, you know, Arnold taking chances is is worth watching um, in, in terms of him trying to grow past just being seen as, you know, Conan the Barbarian or the Terminator, like just basically a giant hunk of muscle. Um, I think that there's a ton of cultural references that are in this movie that, you know, if you don't want to be outside the inside joke, you would need to see, cause I think it's just a, a classic sci-fi movie. I think it is probably one of the most interesting in terms of sci-fi movie. And I think maybe that some of that comes down to the fact that I think, uh, genre wise, it didn't quite know where it wanted to be. Um, and I, I think film noir and, you know, 80s action or just action in general i think are two interesting genres to try and mash together i don't know how well they work together um but i think that ultimately i think this movie is it's enjoyable it's a good it's a good ride you know at the end of it i didn't regret seeing the movie which you know we've definitely done um especially even in this trilogy that we're reviewing but it um it's like I said, it's not one that I, I would feel any need or desire to watch. It's definitely something I could see, you know, if we still had cable and TNT or it was on, like I would I would let Total Recall keep playing in the background. Granted, I don't know if you could get Total Re- a, a TV version of this movie, um, but I, I think it's worth watching for sure. I just, I for me, it's not a, a must own. No, that's fair. That's fair. Like I said, it, mileage may vary. Yep. Uh, I, you mentioned Conan. I just want to drop this little aside. The opening credits, the Total Recall, did you recognize the music, the score played over it? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's literally Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was a weird choice. Very weird. Yeah, there's... Even when he first goes to the Recall place, how whimsical the music is. I'm like, I thought the score is like... It's kind of like... I would love to hear the entire score because I'm like, I feel like it's kind of all over the place, but I think that fits with this movie because I thought this movie was kind of all over the place. 
yeah, a lot, lot of ingredients. Yep. And uh, while we get out of here, Brett, uh, my favorite quote from the movie I haven't had a chance to read. Uh, it's with Richter in a character apparently called Helm. Okay. I don't know if you remember him, but you'll remember him when I read this exchange. But Helm reminded me of you. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that with a couple of his exchanges. It's, yeah, is so it I'm at the beginning the of the movie? <laughs> okay. What's that? It's, okay, I think I know what it is. Oh, I'm sure you do, Brett. So we're going to start. This is Richter leading off the dialogue. I want that fucker dead. And then Helm says, I don't blame you, man. I wouldn't want a guy like Quaid porking my old lady. And Richter says, you saying she liked it? And the delivery from Helm here, he's like, uh, no, I'm sure she hated every minute of it. <laughs> Was that the exchange you were thinking about? Yeah, that's exactly the exchange I was thinking about. I was like, yep, that was a Brett Mosher line. That's what that was. <laughs> yeah, he had big Brett Mosher energy. Uh, well, you know, I think you said we ran a little long, but at the end of the day, I think you'll still be home in time for cornflakes. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think we have a podcast next week, but if we don't, we'll see you in two weeks. I will say real uh, quick, not to decide to track your thing, I will, I'm so sorry for doing this. I will give credit to the movie. This is probably the first movie in terms of if you're looking at it time-wise, I saw two women actually like fight on screen where it wasn't like a weird cat fight where they're just pulling each other's hair. Like the fight between Melina and... Um, what Sharon was, Stone. Yeah, and Sharon Stone was actually a really cool, like, woman fighting scene where it was, it didn't feel sexist. It was awesome. So, sorry to cut you off. Just felt that the need to say that real quick. Yeah, I mean, being sexist isn't cool, but goddamn Sharon Stone. <laughs> uh, anyway. <clears throat>